Um, the essence of what I want to speak about tonight is uh, just an exploration of attachment to views and opinions. As long as we were mentioning uh, clinging upadana today, there are many places where the Buddha spoke about four fields of grasping, he called them, just four big areas where grasping comes up a lot. Pretty obvious, the first is, um, is sense desires. The next is grasping at views and opinions. This is a huge source of confusion and suffering. Third is uh, Sakaya Ditti. Ditti means view, so it's actually grasping attachment to view of self, sense of self. So really, both of those are views. I'm going to conflate them. And the fourth is uh, at rites and rituals, which is really talking about believing. It's almost uh, back in the Buddhist day uh, where there were beliefs, for instance, certain religious beliefs that if you washed yourself in a certain river, that would wash away all your previous bad karma. So he's saying, you know, attachment to that is uh, not helpful. But we could think of it almost as magical thinking, you know, our little personal rites and rituals. But I'm not speaking about all of those. I just want to talk tonight about attachment to uh, view, because I personally find it really fascinating. Just a warning. I can go on and on, really. But I won't, but I find it fascinating. Um, and I just want to start then with um, they t the Buddha spoke about three levels of wisdom, three levels of understanding, which I think can be really useful. I've talked about this to some people. If we realize that things are happening on all three levels. So the first is called like heard, acquired wisdom. So something we've read, something we've heard, something someone's told us, extremely useful. I mean, that's what we're up here, blah, 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 you know, and what you read in the suttas or whatever, acquired wisdom. Of course, because we don't know for ourselves, we don't really know what's true or not, but it's extremely useful. And the second level is sort of putting that information, you could say, we uh, contemplate it, we explore it in our experience, it's kind of using the thinking mind in a useful way. And we start to understand it, say impermanence, for example. We first hear it go, yeah, it could be, makes sense. The second level, we're thinking about it, we're consciously noticing it. We think, yeah, yeah, pretty much that seems like I could accept that. But that level still isn't transformational. And the level bhavana, mayapanya, bhavana means mental cultivation, or you could say that's the level of insight when we talk about insight meditation. And that is a level where uh, it's transformational. So that's kind of the level, um, that's what insight meditation is. So what's happening? What's the nature? Very, this is simplistic. I don't at all claim to be covering all the nature of insight, okay? Just giving like a flavor. So what's happening in a moment of insight? Of Dhamma insight, insight in your experience, or even uh, some personal problem or a mathematic problem or anything. It's like a, it's not like you're suddenly thinking about it and goes, yes, that makes sense. That's the rational answer, right? It's a kind of aha moment, right? It's like, wow, just all of a sudden you recognize in a different way. 
It's not uh, an experience of thinking. You know, it's like really, and the way I talk about it in terms of the way I'm talking tonight, is it's really a shift of perception. Like we've recognized something in one way, that's just how it is, and suddenly something lets go that we didn't even know was being held, and we suddenly perceive something in a different way. You know what I mean? Just, you know, those... Um, Tompe-l'oeil things, where if you look at it one way, it's two vases, and then if you kind of shift your perception, it's two faces. You know that kind of thing, what I mean? And both perceptions are there in that phenomenon, right? It's not like you get rid of one piece of paper and bring up the other one, right? Both ways of perceiving are there. One isn't true and one isn't false but they're different modes of perceiving. So that's a kind of a simple way of talking about it. But really, to me, it really feels like that's what's happening with insight on a gross level or on the most subtle levels. Something lets go. And so reality doesn't change. Maybe even this particular situation isn't ostensibly externally different. But because of this perceiving in a completely different, unexpected way, it opens up a whole different understanding, a whole other possibility of response. A whole, some people are nodding. Hopefully, hopefully you have some sense what I'm talking about, right? Not just like making this up. I hope. What the heck is she talking about? Never happened to me. So, <laughs> so you know, and we're waiting for some the huge insight that's going to end it all. And you're having all these little ones. But I saw this. I really understood that craving comes and goes, right? And when the craving for that banana is gone, it's really gone. I don't need the banana. The freedom from craving is freedom. I really got that. So how come two seconds later, you know, I gotta have that banana. Like I really got it. And I'm, I'm choosing something simple, but on deeper levels or deep of personality patterns of, of, of real suffering, don't you often sometimes feel frustrated? Like I really understood this. Why? And maybe not just this retreat. People have said, and this is not unique at all, now I'm seeing, I would, the last retreat, I went through this, I really understood this, and somehow I forgot it. And now it's like, oh, right, that, I'm having to learn it again. Well, yes. That's why it's practice. And it's also because of the subtlety, the subtlety of levels of delusion. So we keep having insights again and again and again. I'm saying this not to be discouraging, but to be encouraging, you know? Thinking, well, now I saw it, it's over. But the perception shifts back again. But once we've recognized in a different way, even when it shifts back to the other way, you know, doesn't it? It changes something in the mind stream. There's another possibility. And so say with impermanence, the simplicity of really getting that the suffering and something isn't not getting what I want, but the craving itself. Like on some level, absolutely, I know that. 
Maybe not absolutely. Okay, absolutely for the moment. Then relatively, I know it. And we forget. But that experience of really knowing that shift of perception from gratification comes from getting the thing to, oh, it's just being okay with the craving and it's gone. That changes something radically in my understanding. You can't give that understanding to anybody else, right? But uh, at the same time, no one else can take it away from you. This is the level of insight, wisdom, that's really transformative to us. So how does it come about? Yeah, that's what we all want to know. Uh, You may have noticed by now that it doesn't occur through willpower. (laughs) Hmm? It doesn't occur from wishing it. Okay, now today I'm going to sit under this tree and I'm going to see to the depths of impermanence. Boom. Okay, the Buddha could do that. That's a different thing. That's aditana based in wisdom of knowing what's appropriate. You know, that's a whole nother talk. But it's not like just wishing for it. And it's not by thinking about it. It's something lets go that we didn't know was clinging. And there's many different ways, but what I want to talk about tonight is that in terms of clinging to view, an idea, which in level of our insight wisdom can really get very subtle. In the world, not so subtle. The suffering of clinging to views, the conflict, the pain, the hatred, the violence is appalling and shocking. Well, it's not all the other guys, you know, but it's the same pattern down into our practice here. So that's what I want to talk about. Okay, a simple example of of you letting go. So say someone told me this this, uh, example a few years ago. They were in a a sitting and uh, the, the body just got so restless, so unpleasant, so difficult that they couldn't stand it. And so they stood up and it was in a different place. They were in the back of the room and you could only get out by threading your way through all the people and it was really, really crowded. So social... Um, shame kept them there. But they were sitting there, and this, the experience she was telling us, this Vedna is so unpleasant. It's so horrible. This is causing me so much suffering. This is just horrible. I can't stand these sensations. And, it's my, and she was just getting completely worked up. But standing there, rather than running away, there was some modicum of mindfulness. And at some point, it shifted. Oh, this is just unpleasant Vedana. That's all that's happening. And it's not really that what's causing the suffering. It's just my mind going wild. And it changed the whole experience. It was still restless. It was still unpleasant Vedana. But the belief that this restless experience is unbearable, causing me so much suffering, that belief, that view, was just suddenly seen and it dropped away. And so the experience itself was perceived and responded to in a radically different way, right? As we all know, we can't wish that. It may not happen next time. But remembering when we, when we experience that, it begins to break us out of views and descriptions of experience that we don't even know we're clinging to. We don't even know we're holding them. That's where, to me, it gets so fascinating. 
So to talk about uh, what a view is, I need to start by talking about perception, which luckily we've talked about a lot, so I don't have to go into it too much. But it's, it's fascinating. It's just fascinating. So as you know, perception is that arising with each moment of contact, and it's that uh, uh, precise in the way the Buddha talked, the, the description, right? The label is not the labeling like noting, but the recognition quality. What's happening? As the Buddha says, what we perceive, we think about. Now, that doesn't have to be papancha. That doesn't have to be a problem. It's really quite useful. So there's a perception. A little while ago, you heard a sound. The perception, for all of you, was probably bell. And the thought, which maybe doesn't quite bubble up to thinking, is uh, meaning, uh, oh, it's 7.25. That bell's time for the the sitting, to go into the hall, to listen to the talk. And all of these perceptions, one after the other, you come in and there's a perception of where you sit, and you're a yogi, and I sit up here, you shut up, I talk. You know, it's like all these perceptions, we string them together and describe our world. It's useful. If every time the bell rang, you're all running around, oh, the bell, what does that mean? What am I supposed, you know, where do I go? You know, nothing could happen. And Uh, It works because we have more or less, close enough, the same description of the perception, you know, of what it means, even whether it was pleasant, unpleasant in that moment for you is different, right? So that's just how we describe our world, who we are, you know, and however we self-identify. All of that is um, normal and useful on on a relative level, on a conventional level. It's not a problem. Of course, the first place the problem begins before we even get into views, and we've talked about this as well, is that our perception is quite frequently not accurate. And more, even more frequently when it's not accurate, we have no clue that it's not accurate. We totally believe it, we think about it, we build up the description of, of the world based on that perception. We've talked about this, right? Have we talked about this? Sort of. Uh, okay, little examples. Um, so, and what's it distorted by? Our friends, greed, hatred, and delusion. So, my example I like for delusion is very impersonal. Is when I'm home, if I don't have my glasses on, I really don't see that well, obviously. And I like things to be clean, you know, to a certain level of, of, of observable cleanliness, you know. And so if I'm walking around my house and it hasn't been clean for a while and I don't have my glasses on, I'm happy. It's clean. Oh, yeah, that looks like, you know, I don't notice anything. And I'm just quite happy, you know, and I, I don't tend to wear my glasses. Now you're all a blur when I'm just walking around if I'm not needing them for something. But then I'll notice I'll be working at my desk and have my glasses on and leave them on when I go into the bathroom or something. I'm sitting there and I go, whoa, what's that ball of dust? What's the spider? What is that grunge over there, you know? And so it's like the perception is really changed. The, the fogginess of delusion is gone. Huh? That's just a very simple example. But we misperceive from delusion. Then we think about it. Or if our a perception if the mind in that moment is colored by greed or colored by aversion. The same, I remember one day, I don't remember where it was, but it was a really misty, foggy day, like yesterday. And 
it went on all day, and I noticed for myself how when I, I must have been on a retreat, when I'd walk outside, and if my mind was in a little bit of a, a, a clinging, a happy state, I'd walk out and go, oh, this fog is so beautiful and cozy and the light, you know, and you'd get in all the thoughts about it. And then forget about that. And later in the day, as you know, my body hurt, I was feeling grumpy, I walk out and go, oh, this is so oppressive, you know, it's so heavy, it's so, you know. Similar fog, not the same fog a few hours later, but similar fog, very different perception. And what we perceive, we think about. And what we think about, then it turns into papancha with the, with the emotions, with the moods that go along with it. If we're aware that's happening, great. That's fascinating to bring mindfulness to. When we're not aware, then what we think hardens into a view. And without even recognizing we're attaching to it, we take that to be the true, accurate description of me or you or the fog or reality at this moment. Dingo Kensi. Sense, when sense organs encounter an object, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, the fog, the dirt, the banana, whatever, influenced by all the accumulated habits and past experiences of your mind, The whole process is entirely subjective. Notice he's not saying it's kind of subjective. It's a little subjective. He's saying it's entirely subjective. When your mind is full of anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. Have you noticed that? (laughs) When your mind is peaceful, free from clinging or fixation, you experience everything as primordially pure. It's really interesting to see. Or this funny story, probably you've heard me tell this before, I heard it from Charles Genoux, about a Zen master and a samurai. So two good guys to talk about. So this wild, uh, aggressive samurai comes to see a Zen master with his sword, and he's angry, and he's threatening to kill the Zen master, and screaming and yelling and calling to the Zen master, you pig, you pig. And the Zen master, as they do, just bowed and said, and you, sir, are a Buddha. So this even took the samurai back a little. He said, a Buddha? You see me as a Buddha? How am I a Buddha? And the Zen master said, well, a pig sees a pig. A Buddha sees a Buddha. It's really more that way than we might realize. Again, it's not to take it personally, but just watch how this works. It's so fascinating. So the perception, again, the perception colored by any one of the collations, and we just don't quite recognize it, leads to a description that's inaccurate, which leads to a view and then can lead to acting on it. Sometimes we can see through it, the accurate perception, then the whole thing falls away. For example, uh, someone told me at a retreat, not this retreat, I guess a smaller retreat, that they, so the the particular uh, yogi hadn't come to any sittings for a day or two, 
And they got really concerned, you know, which can be good. You know, it can be good if you, someone's really missing for two days. It would be good to tell us, you know. But it, this wasn't here. It was somewhere else, a smaller, smaller venue. And so they started noticing after some time, well, they really are missing. And all the thoughts, you know, and all the worry gets going, and where could they be, and they're lost in the woods, or, did they, you know, whatever, all of that. And as the yogi didn't show up, the thoughts start to come together with emotion, and it hardens, and so it moves from perception to thinking about it, chitta, to view, ditti, hardened into view, yes, something's really wrong, and I have to do something about it. And you can see the difference between when it's just thoughts going through your mind, and you can see, oh, yeah, it's just thoughts, and when suddenly the view is, yes, something's wrong, I've got to let them know right away. That energy that comes, it's an accurate description of reality. And then this person recognized, after I don't know how long, because they were telling me later, they recognized that, oh, actually, and this is also funny, because they were just looking in the wrong place. They had a wrong idea of which place in the hall that person sat. And so for two days they went through this thing, and then they saw it, and they said, oh, okay. Some misperceptions are easy to see through. The view, the reactions are all, we just can kind of laugh, hopefully. Okay, great, we learn how it works. But so many, so subtly, we don't see through because they're happening so frequently. When the Buddha talked about um, hallucinations of perception, inverted or distorted perception, which is really we tend to see or to perceive what is in constant flux as being permanent, right? We don't have like, there's not like a big sign, yes, this is permanent, but perception's happening every minute and we're perceiving and assuming permanence so much of the time. We don't recognize it. Or it's a, it's a Nietzsche dukkha, we don't perceive the unsatisfactory nature of things. We perceive this as offering security, satisfaction, happiness. Or, of course, as Guy has been talking about so much, we perceive uh, a, a separate identity, a separate self, where there isn't one. And these perceptions, these distortions, hallucinations of perception, of course, are what lead to thinking, lead to descriptions of our world, lead to how we act and respond, right? But they're happening, these perceptions, so they're so fleeting, you know? They're so quick that we don't tend to even recognize those perceptions are happening, never mind all the thoughts and reactions that describe our world, the views that are coming from them. It's just such a, such a subtle process. The Dalai Lama said once that all of our difficulties come through mistaken perception. That's why there is so much emphasis on direct experience and true knowledge. So, I mean, the emphasis here, that the simplicity of moment-to-moment -moment mindful awareness, right? Not looking for something, because that's already too much. We're looking for some idea of what should be there. Gone, you know? But the moment-to-moment -moment direct experience through that each moment of pure mindfulness is just a moment, as we've said, I think I said last night, just mindfulness in that moment is free from 
wanting, from greed, from aversion, from delusion, just for that moment. So there's the possibility of a more accurate perception. It's quick, it's quick. Not every accurate perception leads to insight, but the steadiness of the mindfulness and the simple perception is what allows for that shift, that wisdom, to arise. So, perception, when it's inaccurate, leading to the way we think about and describe ourselves, describe the world, leading to when those descriptions are implicitly believed. The Buddha described it because the definition of view is, this alone is true, everything else is false. If only our views telegraph themselves quite so clearly. And I want to start just talking about how we get attached to our descriptions in a bigger realm than the subtlety of uh, personality view because it's the same process. So having an opinion, I just want to say, having an opinion or a view in the world isn't a problem. Of course, we need opinions, preferences, views, right? It's election time. It's helpful, up to a point, to have a view if you're going to vote, or if you're not going to vote, either one's a choice. And there's an opinion informed by whatever. Knowing that process, no problem. Just to know whether you want to take an orange or an apple at breakfast. You know, there's nothing wrong with using opinions. It's not that we, in this way, we give it all up and we can't tell anything from anything. We're not talking about that talking about grasping. Because what that happens, once we get attached, this kind of energy of clinging, this holding to a description, a view, an, an understanding of how we think we are, how we think the world is, what's right and what's wrong, the holding to it, to our description, we take it to be the reality And it's as if, and don't believe me, look in your own mind, in your own heart. It's as if our awareness snaps shut. You know, it's as if we stop really looking. Because now we know. This is how it is. And we often don't notice then, or even allow in perceptions that run counter to the particular view or description of whatever it is that we're holding to. I call it selective perception. And we don't even realize we're doing it sometimes. Sometimes we do, you know. But this freezes our mind. It freezes the intimacy with experience we're not recognizing accurately. It freezes our idea of people, our idea of ourself. And in a very subtle way, we just notice what supports our view sometimes. Because when we're really holding to a view, it kind of, even though if we really look, it's a suffering, it's a a, a rigidity, we're disconnected from the fluidity, from the beauty, from the intimacy, the mystery of life and ourselves. It gives us, can give us this false sense of security, you know. We know what's right and we stay with the people who believe the same way we do. It's comfortable. And... uh, it's scary when our views are challenged. A lot of times we feel threatened or anger or, I mean, look around the world, you know. Incredible 
violence and fear from you know, different groups of people who have different views or beliefs about anything. So it can be subtle, but it can also be obvious. I can watch myself doing this since you guys are really lucky to be sitting and you don't have to hear all the pre-election stuff. I tell you every four, every four years, it's just, for me, it's so much suffering. But I watch my mind, it's fascinating. How every, let's go to a different year. Let's go to a different election. I don't talk about this one. But in any particular one, in the last some years, it's like I have my views, what I believe. And, you know, I may not each particular person think they're so great, but I know one particular one is more aligned, the best I could do anyway, with the views I have. And I totally believe that's true. I believe my view. I know their views. But it matters, right? It's not like it doesn't matter. So I believe them. But I can really watch and see how my mind snaps shut. I re- remember when Nixon, maybe, I don't know, maybe some of you weren't even born then, I don't know. And like, I didn't want to hear any good thing about Nixon. I didn't want to, you know, if he came on TV and did something kind of sympathetic, I didn't want to know it. I didn't want to let it in because it messed with my view, you know, of the demon, whatever. And I can see how hard that is, how much suffering that is in my mind. And when they have, you know, the debates with the presidential candidates, and I can see in my mind, it doesn't matter for me what anyone says. There's nothing, there's nothing the guy I'm not going to vote for could say that could change my mind. There's nothing, right? And if I go in with that view, am I likely to hear anything? Is there even a possibility that I don't have it all scoped out? No, there's no possibility. And I have plenty of friends who all agree with me. (laughs) Very few people do I know who don't. And then we can't even talk about it. And so that's, that's, you know, half half this country. It's so, and that's even without coming to blows. That's without coming to violence, you know? But the sense of, so this is a delicate line we walk. It's not simple to hold, and I'm not saying I found how to do it, but this is, this is gross. I mean, this isn't hard to notice, right? That I really hold a view, an opinion. I need to act on that view and opinion. I'm not renouncing that. Can I do that without the attachment that makes me right and then wrong and shuts down my perception and makes it impossible to receive any new information. It's like Krishnamurti talked about freedom from the known. When we're attached to view, we're the prisoner of what we think we know. And then we can unconsciously often make choices to only let in the information that confirms what we know. Or we hear information that discounts it and go, well, He's just lying, <laughs> you know? That's all, he's just lying. It doesn't mean that, so you can't even believe it. Whatever. So you can see how much suffering comes from this in the world. And that's in really obvious. What about all the, the ones we don't even recognize? This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. All things arise because of their interdependence. That is why nothing has a separate, independent identity. 
because of our ignorance and hatred that we accuse, reprimand, or slander one another. Each of us is a product of our family, our environment, our friends, our education, our culture, our society. These conditions lead to a certain way of seeing things and a certain way of responding to things. When we see this, we can have compassion for everyone, including ourselves. Just seeing how much incredible suffering there is in this world from you know, people holding different views about, you pick it, about our cultural identity, our gender identity, our religious identity, our uh, country identity, our political, whatever it is. I don't have to go through it. You can pick this country, you can pick almost anywhere in the world. And interesting to see how it's often the neighbors who are closest that have the most virulent fear and hatred of of their views being assaulted. I don't want to get into all, but but you see what I mean. And sometimes it can be a little bit amusing. We're we're coming away from war and hatred and bombs to a little less, but how we can act on it and how we are so entrenched in our way of seeing that we just can't even get it, that another way is equally valid. One years ago, many years ago here, we're at a teen retreat, a retreat with teenagers. So kids that were coming in at this retreat, quite a few had come from the city, from ghettos from a whole different environment than here. So it's hard enough, they're having to eat tofu and beans and all. But the cooks at that particular time, many years ago, were in a really sugar is poison phase. <laughs> and so they wouldn't serve anything with sugar. God forbid there should be any sugar out anywhere. So these kids, I mean, they're in this really austere environment out of the city, you know. I mean, it's so many difficult things. And the food and the meditation, and then they're told they can't have any sugar. And it was like, it was like just like really too much. They were really suffering a few. So finally, with the intercession of one of the teachers who had to do like a major intercession with the cooks, this is what I, some of the kids were allowed to have a secret stash of sugar. They could like go hide it, you know. I thought, you know, they come in from the city. People are probably dealing drugs on the street and, you know, in the corner, and they have to, like, go hide their sugar you know, <laughs> for each other. But, you know, pretty whacked out. Pretty whacked out. So just the, the sense of just being willing to let go of our perceptions. Sugar is bad for you, always, and everybody. You know? <laughs> how, to, how to let go of that? And these are ones we even know that we've picked up. What, what do we know for sure that we know so for sure we don't even think about it? We don't even question it. We don't even know that there's another option. This gets into the territory, of course, of personality view. Even more than that worldview, just to give a a simple example that I liked a couple of years ago. I was teaching here with Steve Armstrong. And, and somebody uh, said something 
I think he, I can't remember the whole context, but I think Steve had somehow been talking about karma, and anyway, somehow the subject of rebirth had come up, which luckily I don't have to clarify because we have Guy, and I'm sure he'll talk about it in much more specifics and brilliant detail than I ever could. So I can just throw things in like that and not have to describe them because Guy's here. That's what's really great about teaching with a team. So I'm just mentioning rebirth. I'm not saying anything about true or not true, who knows, but it had come up. <laughs> and, and somebody just said something in, in the question period, which is, well, of course we know that's not true, but you know, just, you know, just completely dismissing it with an assumption that that's what we all know. You know scientifically, that's no way that can be true. But then he went and asked some question. And Steve, I really thought, I thought what's Steve going to say? <laughs> and he said it was great. He pulled this example. He goes, oh, you're so sure that couldn't possibly be true. He didn't try to convince them. He just said, here's another story. Somebody we know, that we all know, um, a Sri Lankan man now, when he was born, he was at about two years old, he spontaneously started a chanting in Pali, these really, really long Pali chants, in a kind, and, and he was two years old. He'd never heard these in his, in his two-year-old life. And, of course, Sri Lanka is... Uh, a lot of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. Um, and so his parents you know, took him to, you know, kind of more scholars, and they said, not only is it accurate, he's chanting like the whole Satipatthana Sutta kind of thing. I mean, not just a few lines. Not only is it accurate, it's in a kind of ancient Pali that isn't even what the scholars of that day were using. What do you do with that? He started remembering spontaneously lifetimes back with um, Buddha Gosa, who wrote the, the Vasudhimaga. He was a secretary or something. We know this guy. This is a true story. What do you make of that? This is if we can not have to make anything of it. If we can let that openness that not knowing inform our mind. You get a sense, well, I don't know what your minds did with it. You all got kind of quiet and didn't see anyone going, oh, that's a crock. You just were kind of listening, okay. So if you didn't go that, if you just kind of held that space for a minute, huh? What could that be? You get a sense of the lack of clinging, the openness to discover, the potential to just soften, to just surrender into the mystery of this moment without having to have an explanation before, during, or after, without having to compare it to anything, without having to know what it means about you, without having to know how it compares to that other person or your last retreat or what you read or what guy said or what Sally said or anything. Just this openness to explore, to be present, Yata Bhutta, with things that they have risen in this moment. That's just that moment of freedom from the known, freedom from attachment to view that allows just for this moment of openness and presence and freedom to discover. A kind of a real tenderness, a kind of a, a curiosity for life. My, and, and this is what we're trying to talk about in terms of the quality of mindfulness. 
when we talk about that level of Dhamma Vichaya investigation, it's not, now I will understand this and I'll put it together with this and I'll have this in it. Just like, what's happening now? You know, that be, you know Suzuki Roshi's famous line, beginner's mind. You know, in the beginner's mind, there's many possibility. In the expert's mind, there are few. Just to be here now. This quality of almost childlike innocence, you know, connectedness and wonder without having to draw conclusions. So my favorite example of this, which I often have used, is the uh, world-renowned cellist Yo-Yo Ma. He, uh, he's currently, he's involved in so many kind of cross-cultural musical uh, adventures, you could say. You can see as this kind of a, an openness to discover all different kinds of music and kinds of instruments and form. And he brings them together. He has, it does this Silk Road Ensemble now. There's people from all over the world, from all different kinds of music, different scales, different tonalities. I've listened to some of it, and I have to say, I really don't get some of it. It's like out there to you know, kind of a limited view of looking, but I love the sensibility. Well, one time years ago, before he was doing the Silk Road, I saw in Germany, actually, uh, some kind of TV documentary about him. And all I remember is he was flying in a helicopter into the middle of Africa to some very simple tribe in Africa. And they, he got out of this helicopter with his like million-dollar cello. And he was going to they bring him to, I think it was a, a, a tribe of bush people, what they called. And so they took him to the head musician of this tribe. And so this guy's, this musician, his instrument was literally, it was a big uh, empty oil drum, you know, like a, a metal oil drum that he had fashioned uh, kind of a, a series of strings like this on just a wooden, wooden pole. That was his instrument. So he was playing and singing on that. And then Yo-Yo Ma was playing on his cello and then Yo-Yo Ma says, oh, let's switch. So they switch instruments. And he had this, just this really, this childlike openness. And so he's trying to play this guy's instrument. He goes, oh, I just can't play this nearly as good as you. You know, you play it so well. And it wasn't put on at all. It was just this complete openness to discovery. I've always remembered it because I was so touched by that that quality of mind that isn't building walls and separations through our views of, well, I have this million dollar cello and this background of all this Western classical music and I know so much and, 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 and look at this oil drum. None of that was there. But this sense of appreciation within different cultural contexts instead of trying to you know, reconcile all views. I mean, the freedom from views isn't that we reconcile them all and figure it all out. And this is views of practice, by the way, and views of what's good practice, and views of you know, choiceless awareness versus concentration versus you name it, without trying to reconcile them all into the one right view. It's the sense of not needing to hold to any view. We can use them as skillful means, but can you just imagine that possibility of not holding to any view whatsoever. It's scary a little bit, huh? It's also really freeing. So views of practice, I mentioned some. 
when I'm, I love watching this in myself because this view is just, it takes some little experience. The mind makes up a few thoughts about it. Oh, that's how it's supposed to be. I don't know if you notice this at all in your practice. And it can be more obvious from stuff we've said. And we, uh, having the honor to, to sit while different people come and talk to us, we, we get, you know, we can see it happening one after the other. When you're just in your own, you don't quite see it. So we can see people come in and go, well, you know, good sati, I had good sati, good mindfulness, because when I really paid attention to the pain, it went away, you know? Or someone else comes in and says, well, my mindfulness isn't good because when I try and pay attention to this unpleasant thing, it just goes away and I can't hold on to it. I should be able to see it's arising, it's persistence, and it's passing away, but I can't see that because as soon as it goes away. And someone else says, you know, well, it's, it's, I'm not having emotions. And because I'm not having emotions, I'm not really getting to the meat of things. There's something wrong. And the next person comes in and goes, well, but there's just so many emotions, you know, and I have nothing but emotions. And it's just about getting concentrated and just about being with the breath. The next, I can't do choiceless awareness because it's just breath, 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 calm, 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 nothing's happening. I'm doing choiceless awareness. The other, no, I'm doing choiceless awareness, but there's thoughts and there's sounds and there's things. And how can I possibly get calm when all this stuff is happening? And then it's the same person just rotating, you know, through all of that one day after the other. Now, none of it's suffering if we're not clinging to the view, huh? But when we see, call up the thought in the back of your mind. When you're suffering, when you're not suffering, okay. When, you, what, when it's in conflict, call up the thought, what am I really believing right now? You know, and the thought will come up, I'm really believing there should be no thoughts. Don't just bang it away and go, oh, I know that's stupid. You know, yeah, we know it's stupid, but that doesn't mean we're not believing it. So (laughs) calling up the thought and see right now there's a clinging to that view. And that's the suffering. Great. Explore it. Is it possible to even entertain the sense of what if there's no perfect right view of what your practice should be? Oh, my God. You can't keep judging yourself, can you? You'll never get perfect either, because there is no perfect. Just that surrender into what's happening now. And this is both incredibly freeing, because it's freeing from the clinging, the stricture, the measurement, the limitation of attachment to view. But also, at times, it can be very unsettling, no? Because we are familiar with wanting this sense of security. Even if it makes me totally miserable, we're upheld by our view. It's like, I know. I know what's true. I can't ever do it. I'll never be able to do it. I'm completely hopeless. But at least I know that, you know, and I know what's true. It's like open to, well, what's appropriate, what's happening now. That can be a little bit scary. So views of right practice and this views the Sakaya Ditti, the sense of me, is really arises in the same way. And guys talked about it a lot, you know, a moment of clinging to any sense experience or to any of the akandas. But you can see, again, how there's a perception. So, for instance, you're walking, and there's just a slight unpleasant sensation. It's very faint. There's some aversion, you know, and there's a whole train of thought about it. Ah. 
it's unpleasant, but I'm not seeing it clearly, and this pain has been there the whole time, I'm blocked. There's something wrong, you know? Or in the sitting, that pain in your stomach comes back, oh, there's that block again. You ever think that? There's that block again. What can I do to get rid of it? How can I move through it? My practice is stuck because I keep having the same block. Whole sense, and then all the stories and memories about me and the things you haven't done and how you're blocked and the thoughts, right? Then the next sitting you come and sit down and that starts, just meet it with mindfulness, and it dissolves in sparkling light. (laughs) And ah, that block has dissolved because my practice is moving and it's pleasant. And then we start having memories that support our good practice and our onward leadingness and ideas about the future, as Joseph talked about his body of light. And then all the memories that come up at that time support our view of ourself, our Sakaya Ditti, as being the practitioner of the ages, you know, <laughs> the next Dalai Lama in female form, whatever it is. Selective perception. When you're feeling really horrible, you don't remember all those great cities. You might remember, but you throw, well, that's just was a fluke. This is really me, right? This is the core. It's just taking a perception. It's skewed by aversion or clinging. A delusion's definitely there because we think it's me, a whole story of me, and we run with it. Ajahn Sumedho, who talks great about this self-view, He says, so then the self arises. I start thinking about myself, my feelings, my memories, my past, my fears and desires, and the whole world arises around Ajahn Sumedho. It takes off into orbit, my views, my feelings, and my opinions. I can get caught into that world. That view, of, that view of me that arises in consciousness. That's what Sakaya Ditti is, that view of me arising in consciousness. But if I know that, that view of me, then my refuge is no longer in being the person. I'm not taking refuge in the personality or my views and opinions. So then the world of Ajahn Sumedho ends because what we're taking refuge in is this awareness rather than in the view of me, of personality. I'm so good, I'm so bad, I'm this, I'm that. Our refuge then is this awareness, rather than in trying to sustain refined experiences and consciousness as our refuge, because you can't do it. Resting in this conscious awareness is what he refers to as coming home, or our real home. Just that Tai Chi move, you know, from, ah, oh, there's no way I can do this, and I saw this, and I saw that, and here I am, and to, oh, awareness of. I can't do this, and this and that, and awareness of. The refuge is the awareness, not the clinging to the view. He said something, Ajahn Sumedho, I've thought very interesting, I've often said this to a group of Western teachers a few years ago, we were meeting him. And he's talking in terms of um, personality view, our attachment to our views of our personality, our sense of self. And he said he thinks the biggest hindrance for Westerners, this is just his opinion, one of the biggest hindrances is self-doubt in regard to 
trusting our insights into awareness, trusting our insights, that perception of the liberating sense of refuge in awareness. It's sort of like what Guy was talking about last night of, I want to say minding the gap. That's not exactly what he said. But the, that sense of, of just taking refuge in that gap, in that moment of non-concocting, of non-creating, of just the stillness, the silence, of non-creating view, sense of self, just this, the simplicity, so simple. That's what he's talking about, our insight into the liberating potential of a moment of awareness. Just this. Ajahn Buddha Dasa talks about generating a contentment with this. He calls it emptiness. This guy said lots of words. Generating a contentment with it. And just and seeing how quickly, and this is what Sumedho is saying, that our self-doubt, we, we don't tend to trust that. You know, we don't generate a contentment. We don't even believe it really happened, or if it did, we don't really think it's anything. He says, in part because our personalities, our belief in our personalities is so strong that we really uh, have such faith in our personality views. It's so strong that that's our reference point. That's where we take refuge. That's what we really believe. And we wouldn't think it's believe. We just think it's true. And so we get caught back into believing very implicitly the thoughts, the views, the story of our personality, our personal history. All that's there. It's all cause and effect. But any of us, if we look steady moment to moment, our moods are always changing. Our personalities have certain conditioned patterns, but they're changing all the time, aren't they? Yes. The same ones may come back very frequently. That's the conditioned patterns, but nothing's always there. But what he's talking about our believing so implicitly in our personality is that, so there's that um, simple example, like a moment, just, just the gap. Awareness is like this. And a moment before, it's, oh, there's no way I can possibly do this. And then, and then it's so high. And what about stream entry? And what about all these things? And then, and then and who am I? And what, and what are they talking about anyway? Guy says it's like this. And then it's like this. And the Burmese and the Thais. And what about the Tibetans? And what about the Zen? And it's hopeless. And how can, you know, we fall back into that. And in that moment of, oh, awareness, all of that drops away. And then our habit of mind jumps back into, Okay, it dropped away, but that's no way to live. How can you live like that? You have to have opinions. You have to know. You have to teach, right? And that's what we believe. That's what we believe. That becomes our reference point. It's a lot of suffering. It's a lot, a lot of suffering. But it's radically, it's radical trust in not knowing. Just the willingness to not know, to open into this moment is both freeing, but again, it is radically unsettling at times. It's not like that every moment is just nice, 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 leading to the most nicest, and it just goes like that. As I said in the beginning, even with our gross views in the world, when our views, our perceptions, are, when our views are threatened, that we've been somehow holding to, 
whether it's in the world or in our view of ourself, it gives us a sense of stability. When that's threatened, that can be really scary. Sometimes it happens in meditation. For a simple example, there's just a moment where suddenly the perception of the solidity of body goes away. Just sensations in space, you could say. And at times that's really pleasant, but sometimes the first time that happened, a lot of fear can come up because, where's the body? You open your eyes, okay, here it is. But it feels, you know, it's just because it's unfamiliar and we're comfortable with the familiar. And in terms of our whole subtle personality view, what Sabeto's talking about, we have such a strong belief in it. And the ongoingness of practice keeps, we keep coming up against the views we don't even know we're holding about ourselves, the beliefs, even when they're suffering ones. But every belief we have about ourselves as we keep on with steady awareness is going to be challenged, is going to be questioned. No, no, we can't hold with clinging to any view and really recognize the truth. So while it's freeing, I know for me, I remember one time in retreat I recognized this. It felt like in some way, one way of describing my practice is that it's felt like over the many years a series of, of small little deaths of certain beliefs of who I was that I didn't even know I was holding to, like deaths of certain, certain sense of Carol personality. Now, someone from the outside would say, <laughs> might say, if they were as aversive as me. Maybe it died to you, but you know, one would wish that. It didn't really stop manifesting <laughs> in the world. So don't be afraid. You don't really change into someone different. But this belief, something holding, it dies away. And there can be a kind of grieving. And it doesn't make any sense. Grieving for what? This stupid idea I had about myself that was causing me enormous suffering, and then there's grief when I'm seeing it's not true? OK, grieving is like this. But, you know, or we see a certain habit. Like, I don't want freedom if I have to get rid of this, you know? Notice that kind of stuff. There's one quotation from Stephen Batchelor I like a lot. He says, emptiness is not just the experience of oceanic bliss. It is a falling apart of all of our strategies of self-interest, self-centeredness, and seeming protection. And although it is freeing, it can also bring up great disconcertion. Disconcertion, if you're not English speaker, kind of dis-ease, it's unfamiliar, it's confusing. Like being in no man's land. So just so simple, we can't stand it. But when we just can open, just radical surrender into this moment as it is, free from view, free from clinging to view, just that willingness to generate a contentment with emptiness, with non-concocting, with not needing to know and describe. Then we're left with, just end with this from Ajahn Sumedho, because it also speaks to uh, what Guy said this morning or last night about the island. The only way to go beyond thinking an emotional habit, Sakaya Ditti, sense of self, is through awareness of them, through awareness of thought, through awareness of emotion, through awareness of views. The island that you cannot go beyond 
is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. So let's just practice being awake and aware. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.